Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting Parsha podcast. I am with a veteran of this podcast, I have to say at this point, my friend and colleague and teacher, Yiska Smith. Welcome, Yiska. Thank you, Tzvi. Hello, everyone. Shalom. We are thrilled that you are here with us. I want to remind our listeners, since we taped this in advance, tape, I'm revealing my age, we record this in advance. And uh, when we are talking right now, unfortunately, the hostages are still not home and the war is still going on. I speak for both of us. We extend our prayers and our hopes that by the time you're listening to this a few weeks down the road, that the Jewish people, both here and abroad, will be in a much better place and the hostages will be home. And hopefully that will be the reality that we'll be in. Amen. Kenya Ratzon. So, so good to be back with you, Tzvi. Terrific. And we're an exciting point on our story because finally we're out of Mitzrayim. We've been waiting oh. for a while, right? <laughs> We've been waiting for a while and we are out of Mitzrayim. And yet we're going to find out that Mitzrayim is chasing after us, quite literally, right? We leave, but we haven't left. And the story continues in a very profound way. Yes, it does. So what would you say is at the center of this episode? Why does the Torah go to such great lengths to describe, I guess if I was being a little cynical, I could say another miracle. We had 10 plagues. We saw that God can smite the Egyptians, and yet we get a very long, drawn-out story here of the Egyptians chasing after and God hardening Paro's heart and the whole episode that unfolds in Moshe's interaction with the people. And I'm wondering what you see here. Why is this so foundational to our story? Great question. Well, thank you. I think (laughs) it's a great question because I would argue that in fact, this whole episode of the splitting of the sea, or actually it begins before we came into the sea, that actually this is more momentous. This is even more important than the Hebrew slaves having been freed from Egypt. Well, that sounds like heretical talk to me. Doesn't it? You're going to have to explain a little bit what you mean by that. We make the assumption just because we were no longer enslaved to the Egyptians that we were free. But we, it's two different realities. We were not yet free because they were pursuing us. So even though I guess you could say we're not slaves in the sense of building those pyramids, we're still enslaved somehow. We're still enslaved to their being in power and having power over us, driving us to the very banks of the Yam Suf, of the sea. And we know what happened there. Some of the Jews, were they were so traumatized. Here they thought we were going to be free. And what's coming up behind us? The Egyptians. Yeah, there's something, it's actually quite painful. You know, you've forced me to think about it in a different way, that the sense of to go from the joy, I'm assuming, and the exaltation of being released from slavery, only to discover you're back against the wall with the ocean on one side and the Egyptian army on the other, in a way, it's so painful. You thought you were out, and yet uh, you have this feeling of, not only am I not out, I might even be in worse shape than I was. And that's how you had different responses. People wanted to just pray. People wanted to go back and surrender. People wanted to fight. People wanted to commit suicide. Meanwhile, 
It was very clear what we were supposed to do. Say more. Moses told us we need to just jump in. And even when Moses went back to the divine, back to the eternal, and said, what do we do? And he said, I told you what to do. <laughs> there's a time to pray and there's a time to do. This is the time to do. Right, it's that, that famous moment, right? That Moshe turns to God, and according to Rashi at least, right, Rashi says, what are you talking to me for? <laughs> right. Get to work and start leading. But, you know, it's a puzzle to me because the reaction of those people is very striking because there is this almost cynical part of me that's thinking, they just saw all these wondrous things happen in Egypt. Why are they doubting now? Why is it when Moshe says it's all going to be okay, and their reaction is, at least by many of them, you brought us out here to die? How is it in, what, six days? That's right. This is the seventh. The trust that you would think would have been built up doesn't seem to be there at all. The people are terrified. They have no confidence that it's going to move forward. And there's a sense of, well, we all say this ourselves. If I had seen all those wonderful miracles, I would have been a very big tzaddik. But there's also a piece of me that knows that can't be the case. So what is happening there? I'll tell you what's happening. The 10 plagues that they were witness to were exactly that. They witnessed something happening outside of them externally to their own existence. What was being asked upon them now, they didn't know the sea was going to split. We know that after the fact. It's as if God is saying, look, I gave you proof that I'm here. Now, you need to give me proof that you want to be in this relationship. You know, I want to take a step back as you reminded me of something that Barbanel said, right? Because there's this split screen. Some people are crying out to God, as you said. Some people are saying you took us out to die. Because of this, right, there's the good from ones, right? And then there are the uh, the doubters, right? Moshe's got two groups on his hands. The from ones are praying, and the doubting ones are screaming at him. And the Abarbanel says, no, he says there's only one group. And what's happened here is all that they saw in Egypt was a punishment of the Egyptians for being bad. And that they knew. They knew about the flood. They knew about the Tower of Babel. They knew about Stone. They know that God will intervene and the Egyptians were terrible and they deserve to be punished. But now it's no longer about God and the Egyptians. It's about God and, and them. Yeah, exactly. And they didn't feel worthy, the Abarbanel says, of God's help. That being said, part of not feeling worthy is not feeling able to. I think there's a connection between... I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can just jump into the sea because I don't know if I'm really worthy of some type of a miracle that is supposed to occur that I'm not even sure will occur. Do you think, and I want to press on this point because it's so interesting and I feel like it's right up your alley. I even can anticipate the answer you're going to give me. Are they doubting themselves or are they doubting God? I think they're doubting themselves. I absolutely think they're doubting themselves. But the part of themselves that they're doubting is the more of the ego part of themselves. And what they're being asked to do is to discover the divine presence deep inside of them. Do you see what's happening here? They were witness to all these external miracles. They saw the Egyptians being punished. That allowed them to come in and to leave Yitziat Mitzrayim, the exodus out of Egypt. What was being asked of them now was, in a way, it's as if God is saying, I believe in you, and I know you believe in me, but I need you to believe in you. And the you that I need you to believe in is the me inside of you. 
I just want to share this quick little teaching from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, adapted by a translator, Yanki Tauber. He writes that this expansive understanding of the water splitting wasn't only limited to physical water. The way Hasidut understands is that we all have our own individual sea. It's the sea of uncovering that which blocks us from an encounter with our soul, the cosmic sea that suffuses the deepest secrets of each individual person's creation. This is what was uncovered. This is the deeper mystical, non-physical understanding of the sea splitting. And for that to happen, we had to jump in. So if I'm going to put this in terms that uh, someone less educated like myself can understand, the splitting of the sea is a metaphor really for seeing the hidden, deeper reality that's there. Yes. And the reality that's there you're saying is God is really there and God is within us as well, but it's hidden. It's hidden. And what's hard here is what you're saying is you don't get to see it until after you've jumped. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that doesn't sound fair at all. <laughs> well, who made this system? Our creator, who knows us better than we do, because our creator did believe we're worthy of this. So help me understand what you think enables the person to make the jump, whether it's Nachshon ben Aminadav or the Jewish people then, or in your imagination, what is it those people at the sea have to do to enable themselves to move into the water? Faith. Faith and trust, and I do believe they're two different consciousness centers. Faith will translate in Hebrew as emunah, and trust is bitachon. Faith is in the mind. It's a product of one's understanding that because two and two equals four, when I look out at the world and understand the physics of it, there's got to be a creator. I do believe there's something beyond my limited understanding. So it's sort of kind of a cognitive, cognitive, yeah, rational type of yeah. appreciation, at least. Nachon. What's the expression when? Oh, you really believe in God? Well, I'm smart enough to believe in God, but I'm not that smart that I really know why. So it's an intuitive, intellectual conclusion. Trust, as with human relations, has to do with the heart, and I believe that the people here and us, when we are confronted with our own sea, we do believe. I do believe they believed. I'm not sure, though, they trusted yet. And what do you think was missing to enable the trust? Something they had to invest in the relationship. How do I trust you? I don't know. Not everyone would agree that you should. But yes, I do. <laughs> oh, well. I, I do. Because over the past 10 years, we've gotten to know each other. We participate together. We have common experiences together. We're invested in each other's common values. But the point is that with the divine, it was a catch-22. It was like, in order to do this, you know, you have to trust me. But in order to trust me, you have to take that next step. Ah, this is the part that's frustrating for me. Because what you've described is basically, it's that leap of faith. In order to have it, you have to jump for that's it right. first. And I feel that's unfair. I want to protest for all of us out there, me included. We want a little evidence first. And it's funny because we were talking about this beforehand about Rebbe Nachman. He says something very similar. I'm going to share this with you only because you're going to have a smile on your face. And you, instead of answering me, you're going to say, yes, that's exactly how it works. And I'm going to come way more frustrated. But let's try. So Rabbi Nachman talks about the fact that when you want to pray, you're suddenly surrounded by darkness. And he says, there are little openings of light, 
but you won't see them until you speak the emet. You got to grab the emet. And I'm saying to myself, well, how do you know the emet is the emet? And that's when all the commentaries say, aha, you have to grab the emet first yes. before you see the way out. And for me, it's there's something so hard about that. You're asking me to see something I can't see yet in order to then see it. Yes, but that is the sacred moment. That's where we are invited to partake in this sacred moment. It's like the philosopher um, Anais Nun said, quote, the day came when it was more painful to stay closed up than the risk it would take to blossom. And so we have to take the risk. We have to. And, and what makes it a risk is we don't know what's going to happen. But that is less painful than staying closed up, closed down, where I don't trust. If it's led to this moment where I'm at the edge of my own sea, I trust. Is it fair? I, I think the word fair is in a different construct because fair is according to whose logic? The human logic. So from that point of view, it's not fair. But we're talking about the divine logic. So from Moshe on down, if I understand you correctly, this fundamentally is not just a moment of being saved. It's not just a moment of God revealing enormous power. It is a moment of the Jewish people being challenged to choose to have trust that God cares about them and will take care of them even though they have no guarantee of that fact before they jump in. And that's how we become free. Uh, now you got to say more. That's how we become free. Remember, we get to the other side and we sing this beautiful song, the Shiratayam. Moses leads us, then Miriam comes in with the women and everyone's praising and celebrating. What? Now we are free. We are free because we were witness to those that were pursuing us drowned. And there's the Midrash that the angels up above also started to praise. And the Almighty said, what are you praising me for? Well, look at your people. They're praising you. He said, they're praising me not because people drowned. They're praising me because they know they're free. What are you praising me for? That my own creations drowned? We weren't celebrating the death, the drowning of the Egyptians. We were celebrating that because of it. We are now free. And that happened because we trusted. Free, I want to take this one more step, free from what and free for what? Free from an external will imposed upon us to now choose to accept the divine will upon us, which is why this had to happen seven weeks prior or six weeks prior to receiving the Torah at Sinai. We were free to make a choice. Either a foreign power is going to really dictate to me where I sleep, what I do, what I wear, how I live. And I hope you're getting the message that we see that today. Yeah. Or we can choose if I'm free. I choose to whom I allow as I accept. I'm allowing me. I'm giving me permission. Kabbalat al-Malchut Shemayim. I'm receiving upon me the will of the divine. Only a free person, a slave, cannot do that. So if I understand you correctly, you and Maimonides and a lot of other people, you're in good company. The significance of human freedom is not as modernity would tell us so we can self-legislate and be powerful and be in charge and think how wonderful we are. 
it's because it gives us the opportunity to choose a relationship with God and choose to serve what God wants us to do. It's a life to be in service, yes. Otherwise, I'm enslaved to my own ego. I'm enslaved to me. That's not being free. Wow. In a way, what you're saying, it's even bigger than what you described. This is not only the moment where they are truly free from Egypt, but they have now been empowered to accept the Torah and enter into this covenant relationship with God because they chose to jump into the water. That's right. And you mentioned about Nachshon being the leader. What Shevet, what tribe did Nachshon come from? I'm thinking Yehuda. Am I remembering that correctly? Oh, I feel like I just passed the quiz. Yeah. And who else comes from Yehuda after Nachshon? Are you talking King David? Yes. Oh, good. I got that one right too. and, And okay, now for the bonus points. Who comes from the Davidic dynasty? King Solomon and the Mashiach. Yes. This is a Mashiach moment right here. This is a Geula moment. This is a redemptive moment. It's not just, oh, now I'm free to be in service to God. I'm actually redeeming my soul from it being kept back from its full fulfillment, from its total capacity to express herself. And that's when we begin to feel a little bit worthy. And the trick that you're saying is in the end, in a very challenging way, God cannot give this to us. We have to choose to give it to ourselves. We have to. Otherwise, it has no value. I know, but it would be so much easier. Yes, Why can't, every time you come on here, I want you to offer us something easy. And you never offer us anything easy. Because because I just can't. (laughs) So let's follow up with something then, because I really like this uh, chain of thought you've offered us here. After the beautiful song is over, and the text even says they believed in God, they believed in Moshe, his servant, and within moments, they can't find water. They're complaining, you should have brought us back. You brought us out to die. They don't have food. Why'd you bring us out to die? How do you understand the fact that this moment of tremendous transition doesn't seem to be written in permanent ink? Gosh, I have been working on this for a long time. Actually, since I started cultivating mindfulness, like a daily practice, in many different modalities, different techniques, there's no one way that I do it. But I do spend a certain amount of dedicated time in cultivating awareness. It is really amazing what's going on inside of each of us, that if we don't do this, we have no idea. I believe that if I could transfer over mindful practice today to what the one piece of the experience that the Hebrews did not yet get. It's cultivating mindfulness. When we cultivate mindfulness, it doesn't mean we live happily ever after. It doesn't mean everything makes sense. The big switch, at least in my life, and I teach this to all the different meditation groups that I guide from time to time throughout the year, Without it, we react. With it, we respond. The situation's the same. What happened when they came out and there was no water, we reacted. There's that instinctive human drive to survive. But why the fall back? In other words, I guess what's challenging is they have this tremendous leap forward, literally this leap into the ocean, and they sing the beautiful song, and yet it's almost like it doesn't stick or it's a constant struggle. Yes, or, or end, it's a constant invitation to be more present. I'm going to do what the Baal Shem Tov taught through Hasidut. Turn everything upside down, inside out. You're looking at it and saying, this is not fair. This is hard. I'm saying, the opposite. 
wow, I'm being invited to respond, not to react. There's no water. Oh, Moshe, what do we have to do to believe? What do we have to do to trust? Help us here. What do I have to do to trust more that in the end, I will have my water? I just don't have it right now. Help me move through this. That's a response. Instead, we react. So really what we're invited to do is relive becoming free every day of our lives. Every day of our lives, we come to the sea, the sea is covered over, we have to jump in, it's a redemptive process, we get to the other side, yay, I feel close to God, I love God, I believe in God, and five minutes later, five hours later, where'd you go? <laughs> Where did you go? And it's as if the divine is saying, I haven't left, you left, your awareness has gone away, so you now you think that I'm not giving you water. So it's a constant challenge. It's a constant challenge. It's a constant struggle. It's a constant striving. What is our name? We're not B'nai Yaakov. We're B'nai Yisrael. What did the angels say with the Yaakov? You will be always struggling. You will be struggling with spiritual matters, with God. You'll be struggling with physical matters, with the B'nai Adam. You will prevail. Well, I'm glad you ended with a little optimism there because, <laughs> boy, I was starting to get a little down. <laughs> but I want to take what you're saying and think about today for a little bit. I'm wondering for you, what do you see as the ocean that you now have to jump into? I'm assuming that as much work and progress that you've recorded in your own life, it sounds like you're saying you're still working. You're still doing the work. And I'm wondering what you see as the work today for yourself that you are jumping into. And then maybe a minute or two about where you see Am Yisrael and the Jewish people there is a sense that we our backs are up against the water. That's at least what I'm feeling. That's what I'm identifying with. And I'm wondering then if you could also address where you think we all are. Well, seeing that I just finished teaching a Rav Cook class, Rav Cook teaches to the individual, he teaches to the community, he teaches to the arm, and then he teaches to the world. Only that. Only that. So my initial response to the first part of this question is every day, in one way or another, I'm invited to seek out a moment where I can say, Zeh, this is my God, and I will either glorify or make a home. There's a midrash in Tantruma about the Shifcha, the everyday maidservant, was able to have such an imminent, such a visceral experience that even Ezekiel, who had this like amazing vision of the higher celestial uh, like realities, but it was just from afar. So she was able to say this. As real as that pen in front of you on the table. Exactly, exactly. So what am I being asked to do now? And I think that's part of the answer to your question is, first of all, what is being asked of me? Not how do I see it. What is being asked of me? Can I look at the horror, the darkness, the pain? And you know, we live here, we have family, we have grandchildren between this one and the army, this one's boyfriend in the army, this one's girlfriend in the army. One daughter teaching kids who haven't seen their father in two weeks, and she wonders why she has discipline problems in the class. This other one who's he's a therapist, I can't tell you what his days are like. I can only imagine. The other one who is up north, I'm so affected by all of the darkness. I have to, I believe and I trust that I'm invited every day to say, this is my God. So I look for the miracles. I look for the light. I look for the achdut, where there are moments of unity. Because quite frankly, outside of that, if I just see it not through the lens of spirituality, only through politics, I feel betrayed. I feel angry. 
I feel bad. I really feel bad. However, I can take that. That's more of my reactive sense to my very survival. How do I respond to this? Especially now the fronts are increasing. It's no longer just Gaza. It is Lebanon. It is Syria. It is the Kutis. It is Iran. It is, I mean, we can go on and on. We're surrounded. It's an invitation. And Sri, I'm not just being nice. I'm not just being idealistic. It works. I work hard. Don't always succeed. But like you said before, it, does it have to be hard? Yes, I think it has to be hard. It's pulling that curtain. Pulling that curtain. What is really going on here? And you feel that even in these moments, you're still seeing God present with you. Oh, yes. Yes. When I see 150,000 people coming from all over the world to do volunteer work, when I see the integration between the Dati Jews, the religious Jews, the secular Jews, really being there for each other on the battlefield, when I see communities coming together to cook, I, I, I'm on a WhatsApp group every day. I get these like links to do volunteer work here, volunteer work there, packing sandwiches, making challah, cooking meals, packing clothes. It's cold now up in the north, especially. So many people are doing so much. I mean, just in Nachlaot, where I live, there are several people who have been evacuated who are living in homes where the owners are not in Israel right now. But they came, the army evacuated them. We needed to give them sheets and pillows and comforters. I took out what I had for my kids when they come to us. I said, I have to give. This kind of behavior of we're one big family. And that for you is an affirmation of that deeper reality that when you move those turbulent waters out of the way, there's a pathway underneath Yes. That. And God is offering you and me and all of us that pathway if we choose to see it or try yes. to see it. And I will say this, my theological question that I have to God, is this what it takes? Is this what it takes? See, you asked that in a much nicer way than I want to ask that, but uh, good for you. I do wonder, I do wonder that look what it has taken for us to do this. And continues to take. Continues to take. Wow. So here we are. Am Yisrael, as we are talking about it, we are truly in a moment where we, I feel, we need redemption. We sure do. And we need to feel a trust in God and God's belief in us as well. And as you mentioned that image of the waters, I thought of the idea of a path, that there's a pathway, right, that leads to another side a different reality. And you know, part of that pathway, many people, either they read the verse and they see it at that moment, or they just glance right by it. It's so profound when we do trust, not only does the water split, but it says we walked on dry land. When was the last time you walked out on the beach, let's say at low tide, after it was high tide, then it receded? Was that all dry? No, it's wet, it's muddy, it's gooky. Yeah, the Egyptian wheels got stuck in it, right? Well, Somehow we weren't stuck in it. It was joy for us. All our Creator is asking us, trust me, trust me, but you need to do the work. I'm providing all the, the staging, but you have to get out there and do your part in this relationship. Well, I guess that uh, translating that into where we are, we need that trust in God, that trust in the Jewish people, that trust in one another, that trust in ourselves, 
that is so hard to come by that a better, more optimistic future and even present is there if we can, you know, move the water aside and try to see it. But it feels like a tremendous task for us. It is. It is. And can you imagine, though, the task that these slaves had to endure? Our ancestors managed, is what you're saying. And therefore, we have those genes. And we're here because of them. We have, and we're here because of them. And they were traveling to where we are blessed to be seated right now. That's right. Wow. Okay. So uh, there's a lot to take away here. But I think this idea that, and Yiska, I feel what you're teaching us, that when we read Torah, if we just look at it as events of the past, no matter how insightfully written and how, uh, you know, how deep and how beautiful the language, if we think it's only telling us something about the past, we're missing something. That if the Torah chose to tell us, it's because it's highly relevant even in this very moment. Yes, indeed. The relevance here is the work we have to do to jump in and find trust, even when the world around us doesn't seem to be confirming that, or it's hard to see, or we don't want to see it, or are struggling to see it. Whatever the terms are, we have an invitation, but the invitation is to do the work. That's right. And we have to do the work. And we have to do the work. And we can do the work. And I bless you and bless me back that we will do the work. And to all the listeners, go out and do the work. Put the compassion in the world. Put the kindness in the world because you're able to trust in a better world. Well, I couldn't imagine finishing with anything more both challenging and inspiring than that. So, Yiska, uh, first of all, thank you so, so much, as always, for sharing yourself with so much integrity and honesty and challenge. And yes, indeed, we want to bless all of you with uh, a Shabbat Shalom. And that again, hopefully, by the time you're hearing this, we're in a different place and a lot more of that light has been revealed than mm, we can see. I hope so, so much. So thank you all for listening and we look forward to uh, sharing more Torah with you Thank you. Next week. Thank, Yiska, you thank, thank you to all again. the listeners for listening. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.